There's a battle going on for the heart and soul of America, and the right side must win. It's time for Ladies Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. On Ladies Can We Talk, we talk truth about America and why it matters to you. Ladies Can We Talk starts now. And good evening and welcome and happy Father's Day. This is Debbie George Addis and Ladies Can We Talk. Now, if I tell you folks, I mentioned last week that this show is changing its name, starting with our July 3rd show. We're going to be America Can We Talk. But we're still, this is our last weeks of Ladies Can We Talk. And the entire purpose of the show is better reflected by the name America Can We Talk because the show is really always about re-embracing and protecting the exceptional, unique identity of America. We talk about the issues and politics and policies, always tied to the idea that we want to be the ones who preserve and protect America's greatness. So I want to talk, this is Father's Day, and so truly happy Father's Day to everyone out there, and you are very blessed if you've had a dad influence your life and be part of your life and be part of your children's lives. And so it's a wonderful thing that we in America choose to celebrate Father's Day. Well, I just want to take a moment and um, talk about something that's actually not American, but I'm going to tie it back to what things are happening in America. There's a very important vote coming up uh, in England, in Britain, uh, this coming week, June 23rd. And the vote is um, being used, the term being used is Brexit, B-R-E-X-I-T, Brexit. It's a British exit from the European Union. And the vote is coming up this week. And the, the basic you know, sides in this, it's very much akin in America to we have the liberals and the conservatives. And they have the same factions uh, within Britain, within their parliament and their, um, their government. And there was a horrific murder recently, very sadly. There was a, a member of parliament, a woman whose name was Joe Cox. And this member of parliament was murdered. And she had been one who was on the side of saying they should remain in the EU. You, that they should not exit, but they should remain. So the kind of remain side is one side. And the other one is the vote, uh, the people who want to have England withdraw from the EU and become an independent sovereign nation again. And those are the people, they just refer to that side as leave, L-E-A-V-E, like the leave or the remain. But what really is important about this battle in England and it ties to America is this. What the people in England who want to leave the EU are saying is that the EU is imposing on England. Uh, It's taking away from England's national identity, England's national sovereignty, and it is imposing on England the idea that England must accept immigration policies and other policies dictated by this EU, which is a, I didn't, I meant to look before I came to about how many countries are part of the EU, but it's a very large organization and it, um, it is numerous member countries in, in uh, Europe and they came together to try to have economic strength, to have trade strength. And so that was kind of a, it was sent as a signal that they would have more of an equal trading power, um, 50 countries, yeah, Chris is here, looked at 50 countries, equal trading power with some of the bigger countries in the world. But the trade-off was the member countries lost sovereignty. And now in the middle of the worldwide crisis of Islamic immigration and Islamic refugees flooding into England, a lot of people are in England are saying, hey, wait a minute, this doesn't work with us. This is not working well here. Immigration, just immigration, broadly speaking, is dictated more or less by the EU. And so people in England are saying, wait a minute, what happened to our country? What happened to our values as a country? What happened to our protection of our citizens? We are surrendering 
that to the EU, and there is pressure among the leaders of the EU on member countries of the EU to accept whatever numbers of immigrants the EU says they should accept. And England is watching what happened in Paris, what happened in Brussels, well, frankly, what happened in San Bernardino and Orlando and Boston, watching the violence spreading around the world being caused by Islamic ideology and saying, you know what, we actually, we should get to decide in England what, how many immigrants to take and, and where we place them and how we treat them. We just can't surrender our sovereignty. So within England, I, what, the reason I bring all this up is because it's kind of a, a nationalist, protectionist. We want to protect our country, our identity, our, our, our heritage as English people. And it's not about race or ethnicity, but it is about religion and it is about national identity. And that's really a microcosm of one of the issues happening in America is this our election season this year. The issues America faces are very similar. Are we going to be nationalistic or are we going and just America first defend America or are we going to continue this slow walk towards surrounding more and more of America's sovereignty to the to U.N., to other sources, to trade deals instead of holding on to America's unique place? So this vote in June 23rd in England, it kind of a bellwether in Western civilization. Are people going to actually stand up and say, we're not going to continue the massive influx of Islamic immigration to our country when we see that it undermines security? And consistent with what happens in America, the New York Times recently, that left-wing newspaper weighed in and said essentially that the people who are supporting the leave, the people who want to pull out of the EU, they use the kind of dog whistle signals they always use, talking about, well, you know, this is a little bit, the, the tone of the Brexit campaign is making violence inevitable. It talked about the growing sense in Britain that this is ominous, that, the, that something ominous is happening in our country. They're trying to say, if you stand up for your country, you're signaling hate. Same thing they do to conservatives here. And after this break coming up, we're going to talk a little bit more about what's happening in this country and why we in America need to be standing for our national identity too. Don't go away. Great stuff yet to come after the break. Welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. This is Debbie Georgiatis. I want to correct something I said in the first segment. The European Union, there are 50 countries in Europe, but the actual members of the EU are 28 member countries. It would be a very significant move for uh, the EU entirely if Britain were to vote in favor of the Brexit, if the people who were supporting leaving uh, w- uh, win this election. And actually, right now, the most recent polling, when it started, when the movement started to say within England, let's pull out of out of the EU, it was un- fairly unpopular. The uh, let's stay with the EU movement was larger, but recent polling now has the, the uh, people who support pulling out or leaving the EU at 55%, and the people, the percentage polling to remain within the EU are uh, only 45 And so it's a pretty big jump, and actually the government extended the amount of time people c- could have to register to be part of that vote, and there was kind of protest whether or not that was unfair, but it's as the government, they did it because of some computer problem and people have been unable to register who wanted to. So it's going to be very highly watched, not just in England, but around the world, especially in Western Europe, because I think there's been a sense in many countries within Western Europe, we may think of them as just kind of one big, 
you know, place over in Western Europe, but actually there's a national identity in many countries and much of it is being attacked, altered and diminished by this rapid and massive influx of Islamic immigration. And we're not just talking about, we, I mentioned before the break, Paris and Brussels, but we have a huge change in identity in the Scandinavian countries, in Norway and Sweden and Denmark, massive problems of increase in crime, violence by young Islamic men against women because they bring a different culture because they bring the culture from where they came from and bring it to these formerly peaceful Scandinavian countries. And so there's just a sense in in these countries that, okay, we have, and they have political correctness there too. We have political correctness pushing us around and making us think we we shouldn't be protesting, we should be helping these poor refugees. And many of them are innocent refugees, but the simple fact of the matter is that there has been a massive increase in violence toward women, an increase in violence generally in society, as massive numbers of Islamic immigrants have moved into Western Europe. And the EU has largely been pushing it and promoting it to to the detriment of the well-being of many citizens in countries all over Europe, including in England. So it's been fascinating to watch, and it's fascinating the media is playing the same games as they do here in America, the same bias, uh, where they do with respect to mocking conservatism. They're doing the same thing, the New York Times, in characterizing the people within uh, Britain who are on the side of pulling out of the EU versus those who want to stay in. Well, I want to turn to what's happening here. You know, we're still only a week past the Orlando um, horrific massacre of 49 innocent people uh, by an Islamic terrorist. And I want to, you know, the... This election cycle, this is going to be a really big issue. We're going to talk later in the show about the polling that is um, rather uh, astonishing and, and inexplicable until you dive in and look at it. This seems to show that people think the liberal answer to the Orlando shooting is better than the conservative one. But folks, that's not what people think. It's what the pollsters are manipulating America to make you think is true. But I want to talk just a few things that are just astoundingly important to understand as we move going forward from this horrible uh, attack in the uh, Orlando nightclub and just mention a couple of things that have come to light since then. First of all, you should be aware that we are on track under President Obama's administration. We are on track to give to have one million Islamic refugees into America under his tenure. 680,000 green cards have been issued to Muslim immigrants to America just since 2009. And, you know, that there's many questions being raised about why is it we just have this massive influx of Islamic refugees to America. Combine that with, I want to run through just a bunch of facts and be sure you understand what they are. One is, there is a... An, a former official of the retired Homeland Security investigator who's actually going to be in the show next Sunday. His name is Philip Haney. He'll be on with us next week, but he was former with Homeland Security, and he says that among the main problems that led to that nightclub horrific attack was the conduct of the uh, the changes made in federal policy concerning how we track dangerous refuge dangerous islamic uh, potential terrorists he talked about the 2012 fbi guiding principles the touchstone document on training big changes made under president obama where we essentially removed reference to many terms we removed references in training manuals and government documents that talk about how investigators should go about figuring out and investigating potential terrorists. Language like 
in, in the guidelines that the FBI, this gentleman, Philip Haney, is criticizing that guidelines put in place by President Obama and his team, extremist speech is rarely consequential enough for an investigation. FBI training must emphasize the protection of civil rights and civil liberties. A suspect's mere association with organizations that demonstrate uh, legitimate and illicit or violent extremist objectives don't necessarily result in a determination that the associate in, associated individual is acting in furtherance of that organization's illicit objectives. Translation in English, they're saying, just because someone's in regular contact with the Muslim Brotherhood or some other terrorist organization doesn't necessarily mean that's a problem. This gentleman, Philip Haney, is pointing out that the his terms were, for, were essentially that Obama has handcuffed the federal anti-jihad investigators. Obama has handcuffed the federal anti-jihad investigators. Compounded with that, it turns out that the FBI was investigating this uh, man. This He was killed in the attack, this terrorist, Omar Mateen. But they were investigating him in 2013 because his conduct got rose to the level, was on their radar. They investigated him and concluded that even though he'd made really dangerous comments to co-workers that he had and he had his internet activity was dubious and doubtful and, and caused him concern. They concluded that the criticisms and and concerns raised by his fellow workers were probably just racist in nature. These fellow workers are probably just intolerant of Muslims. So they closed the investigation on this guy who was the Orlando killer in the nightclub. And then a really potent and a just astonishing bit of a fact to just to keep in mind. There is a woman who I hope gets much more publicity, um, and she is a member of the Homeland Security Advisory Council. It's a woman, a 25-year-old Syrian refugee, and her name is Layla Alawa. Layla Alawa. Alawa is a 25-year-old Muslim Syrian refugee who was placed by President Obama as a member of the Homeland Security Advisory Council Subcommittee on Countering Violent Extremism. This woman celebrated the 9-11 attacks. This woman tweets out on the anniversary of the 9-11 attacks, celebration of the 9-11 Islamic attack on America. Here's her tweet from 2014, commemorating the September 11 attacks and saying, 9-11 changed the world for good, and there's no other way to say it. And this is someone whose judgment President Obama respects enough to place her as an advisor on the Homeland Security Advisory Council. People are right to start wondering, what is this president thinking? What is his motive? You ask yourself. This is the group that's supposed to be part of defending America. And this is the person who celebrates 9-11, and President Obama likes her thinking enough, he puts her on that committee. In fact, just last week, that subcommittee submitted a report to the Department of Homeland Security recommending that DHS avoid using Muslim terminology like the words Sharia or Jihad when discussing terrorism. We're being asked to put... Blinders is not even a strong enough expression. It's not just blinders. We're being asked to pass policies without dealing with reality, without dealing with facts. In fact, we're told we're being told ignore facts. Don't tune into reality and facts. Tune into the um, tune into the version of the facts that those attacking us would like us to embrace. 
So we have, uh, you know, and we also, we have discovered this last week that this young man, Omar Mateen, who shot up the Orlando nightclub and killed 49 innocent people, the FBI got alerted to him earlier this year. A gun shop in Orlando, or somewhere in Florida, reported him and said this guy came in and he was really intensely talking about needing needing really good body armor. I told him we don't sell body armor. He stepped away, got in his cell phone, talked in some foreign language, came back and then said, what about buying volumes of ammunition? So the shop owner didn't sell him that stuff and instead reported him to the FBI, who clearly did nothing. And even if they investigated it, they're so paralyzed by political correctness, so paralyzed by fear of being accused of labeling that they did not shut this guy down. The shop owner is Robert Abel. He was a co-owner of Lotus Gunworks in Jensen Beach, Florida. And he told ABC News all about it. And so the investigation has dropped regardless of the fact that this young man clearly was a problem and and through his own conduct online. And then we're going to talk later in the show about the GOP's non-response. But you know what? We're going to um, have to go off to a break. The reason I'm saying all this is there's a reason there's extreme intense concern on the part of the American public about are you doing enough, President Obama and the Democrats, to protect America? And after the break, we're going to have the greatest guest on. Her name is Nani Darwish. She grew up as a Muslim in Egypt. She's an author, a speaker, and she's going to tell us firsthand the straight scoop on a lot of facts about radicalism. Come right back. Can you hear us now? Can you hear us and welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. I'm so happy you've tuned in. And again, we are saying happy Father's Day to all the dads out there in our listening audience. And we have with us at this hour just one of the most truly a national treasure, a woman uh, whom I had the pleasure of meeting. She is an author of three, four books and has a fifth one on the way. And she's on the line with us now, Nani Darwish. Hello. Do we have you? Okay, Mr... We think we have. Okay, well, while we're waiting for her, I'll just tell you, Nani Darwish, I actually met her at a conference last year. Uh, She spoke in Dallas, Texas. Her first book is called Now They Call Me Infidel. And I just reread it over the weekend. I can't believe I left it at home in the way the studio time, but I just, um, it's called Now They Call Me Infidel. I'll just tell you some backgrounds. We're getting her back on the line. But she uh, grew up in Egypt and she has firsthand knowledge about what, you know, what it's like to grow up in Islam. She actually explains a lot about what happened uh, in her childhood and growing up life. She lived through a lot of the battles. Her dad was in a, a military general fighting on Nasser's behalf in Egypt and the excursions into Israel. And she just is full of information. We'll get her back in a moment here. But her first book, Now They Call Me Infidel, I was thinking when I reread it this weekend, on the, I was on a quick flight this weekend, back and forth, so I was reading it then. It should be required reading for every kid in America. Just the first chapter about what actually happened, how the Palestinians are being abused and mistreated by the Arabs. The Arabs are using the Palestinians to make Israel into an enemy. It's rather breathtaking. So Nani has been a speaker in that subject. She's been a... um, uh, just she spoke in Dallas. I heard her last year doing this, and she has her next one was called book was called "Cruel and Unusual Punishment." She also wrote "The Devil We Don't Know." That's kind of scary. And I guess okay. And then the last one she has a book she's working on now called "Islamic Values Versus Biblical Values." Now that one 
is going to be an eye opener for, I hope, a lot of Americans. But, you know, it's a funny thing on this show. We spent a lot of time talking about not just Orlando and not just the Boston Marathon, not just San Bernardino, but really trying to raise the awareness level. But this is not about picking on some religion because it's different than yours. I mean, in America, I think we suffer sometimes because we think, well, you know, we are so embracing of the First Amendment and freedom of religion in America that we think, well, you know, I'm Lutheran, she's Catholic, they're Baptist, Episcopal, Presbyterian, non-denominational Christian. We're so into saying, well, come on, they're all just church, you know, on church row. They're kind of lined up in different cities. And so probably this is just, you know, something else. Islam is just something else I don't know much about. But what is, in fact, we're, what we're going to get, if we can get Nani, I think our system, either her phone or our system is down, but um, if we can get her on, I want her to tell you about, and I'm going to tease it while we're waiting to try to get a hold of her, but she has on her Facebook page, I urge you to go to her Facebook page, Nani Darwish, D-A-R-W-I-S-H. She had a link up about a guy who, uh, do we have her? Uh, hi, Nani, do we have you? Hi, Debbie, yeah, I, I can hear you very well. Can you hear me? I can hear you. We can hear you. Uh, Nani, it's so nice to have you on. I was just starting to tell our audience about your books. Um, My pleasure. Wonderful to be with you. Oh, so glad you're here. And actually, Nani, I have two people, uh, my roundtable ladies, Dorinda and Chris, are here. And I was just starting to tell them, I actually was telling our audience about you and your background. And I was saying that on my trip this weekend out to Cal quick trip to California, I reread again your very first book, Now They Call Me Infidel. It should be yes. required reading for every high school, yes. every kid to understand really what it's like to grow up in, in a Muslim culture. It was just so eye-opening. And like you just said a minute ago that we don't want to pick on religion. I mean, who wants to? I mean, really, it, it's painful for me to to speak about Islam because that was the, the religion I grew up in. And uh, I have no wish to offend the good and peace-loving Muslims. My whole family is Muslim in Egypt. And it's, it's a tragedy. We are dealing with a tragedy. We're not dealing with uh, a wish to, to destroy another religion. Uh, the problem, uh, the problem really with Islam is it's, it is more than a religion. And if Islam was just a religion, then we won't have a problem. The problem is political Islam. Islam wishes to control every government it's in. And that's why we have Arab Springs all the time. Revolution after revolution after revolution. This is how they come to power. And why is that? Do we need something like that? Do, do we need an ideology to penetrate us here in our country that that must control government by Sharia. And this is the key problem for Islam. Islam, if it was just a religion that does not advocate controlling government to enforce Sharia forcefully over people, Islam could be a good religion. And nobody wants to, to, to hate any religion. I grew up in it. And uh, and the sad thing is, is America, when we have the right to practice any religion under our Constitution, they never defined religion. A religion 
according to our open definition, could be worse than fascism and communism combined. And uh, if a political system, let's say a tyrannical political system, wants to call itself religion, are we supposed to surrender and say we cannot criticize it? Since when is it uh, illegal in America to criticize ideology or even religion, any religion? It's, uh, it's, it's all about our freedom, and that's why I'm speaking. I really have no wish to offend Muslims. Frankly, some of my, the nice people I know are Muslim people in Egypt. My whole family is in Egypt. They're all Muslims. So uh, this idea of trying to call me an Islamophobe and, or call me names that, that have, that's only destructive, it's really destructive for both for America and for Islam. And the, the truth is, uh, Debbie, is uh, we're not doing even Islam a favor by silencing any kind of criticism against it. The problem is Islam is in a turmoil today. It's self-destructing. And that's why the whole Middle East is on fire. And, and for us to, to, to go and against one another in America over accusing each other of racist, bigot, Islamophobe, uh, because one of us speaks about an ideology that's oppressive, it's really disheartening for me. I feel very sad for America. I want to, Nani, do you think, I'm curious, I, I just love everything you have talked about and what you explain in your books, and again, I really encourage our listeners to read all of your books, but if you want a, more, a really basic understanding of life, front, you know, front and center, in the front row, someone actually living there, This the, your first book, now they call them infidels, great, but I want to turn and ask you, so today, there's a dispute politically whether or not President Obama does not want to call the violence, for example, in Orlando and Boston and San Bernardino. He will not attach that violence to the term radical Islam. He wants to call it whatever the term he uses, uh, you know, um, violent extremism or something. And some people say that he should just, you know, some of the conservatives say you ought to just say what it is. And others say no, that that will stir up more violence if he calls it radicalism. So what do you think? Well, the whole Middle East, the, the so-called moderate Muslims, which I think most of them are, are really confused, the whole Middle East keeps saying that this is radical Islam. They call it radical Islam. So who are we trying not to offend when our president does not call uh, Islam, uh, radical Islam or terror, Islamic terrorism by name? Because in the Middle East, they're all talking about it. So I monitor Arab media, and I, 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 I hear them speaking. And actually, there's a war going on now in the media about people who are radical and who are uh, supporting ISIS and what ISIS is doing. And some people are in the Arab media are saying that what ISIS is doing is real Islam. And they are discussing the same things we're discussing. So why is President Obama... Uh, trying to uh, suppress a discussion that's already going on in the Middle East. Why is he trying to suppress a topic that is worthy of discussion, especially that American blood is being shed for it? Yep, you know, I, I love that point. And, you know, we're going to, we unfortunately have a break coming just a moment here. But I want to, when you're back after the break, I want to talk about the idea you made reference to there's a war going on. 
Is it accurate? This is my question. I'll tease our audience, and so I hope you'll stay tuned and come back. We're talking with Nani Darwish, author of three books, fourth book coming out soon. We're going to hear about it after the break. But is it accurate to say that we in America are the recipients that there's a war against America uh, from radical Islam? Is it a, if, if it's a war, shouldn't we call it that? So come back after our break. We'll talk about it. And hang on, Nani Darwish. Now, leading up to this summit, there's been a fair amount of debate in the press and among pundits about the words we use to describe and frame this challenge. So I want to be very clear about how I see it. Al-Qaeda and ISIL and groups like it are desperate for legitimacy. They try to portray themselves as religious leaders, holy warriors in defense of Islam. That's why ISIL presumes to declare itself the Islamic State. And they propagate the notion that America and the West generally, is at war with Islam. That's how they recruit. That's how they try to radicalize young people. We must never accept the premise that they put forward. Because it is a lie. Nor should we grant these terrorists the religious legitimacy that they seek. They are not religious leaders. They're terrorists. And Nani Darwish, I'm sure you recognize that voice. We're, this is Debbie George S. Welcome back, ladies. Can we talk? We have on the line just a, a prominent and w- amazingly well-informed spokesperson, Nani Darwish, who's also an author, and I'm sure you recognize President Obama's voice. So your reaction to that, does, the, does even saying Islam give them some legitimacy? I'd love to hear your answer on that. And then, Yes, he said this is not, uh, this is not Islam, this is a lie. The official stand of Islam is to destroy non-Muslims. It's in every page of the Quran. Uh, it's, it's not just in every page of the Quran, but it's in, in every mosque sermon. Uh, the political leaders, they say we want to destroy the great Satan, the little Satan. I mean, uh, it's everywhere. We cannot d- deny that there are government-sponsored st- terrorism in the Middle East. Some of the governments are too smart in the Middle East to sponsor terrorism officially. And what do they do? They claim that America hates them, that America, and this is, you know, to do jihad is illegal international under international law. To do jihad is illegal, and Arab countries know that. So what do they do? They do it, uh, they have to, to claim victimhood, that's number one and from the West, so they give themselves the permission uh, to, to fight the, uh, uh, you know, uh, an, an enemy that doesn't exist. They create us as an enemy. They teach it in their school in order to justify jihad and make it legal because it's illegal. So what happens is uh, a, lot of, a lot of times I, I'm suspecting that the West is hoping that moderate Muslims are the ones who are going to fight, fight uh, radical Islam. And that's why, because the, if the West admits that Islam declared war on us, then, the, you know, the, the West doesn't want to go to war. So what do they do? They want moderate Muslims to take, to take responsibility and moderate Muslim governments to fight ISIS. But this is not going to happen. And uh, and the West has to stop saying that moderate Muslim countries are going to uh, uh, take care of ISIS. They are not. 
because everything is geared towards destroying the West, including Western governments, uh, I mean, Islamic governments. And let me tell you why. I'll prove it to you right now. If Egypt has 500,000 active duty uh, military, every Islamic country has hundreds of thousands of active duty military. If you add them up, there are 18 Arab countries. If you add these, uh, they are in the millions. Do you think moderate Muslims who claim to be the 99% huh? and uh, the bad radicals, according to uh, Obama, are only 1%, they're crazy, they have nothing to do with Islam. If this is true, if we take the premise of what Obama says as true, then why aren't all these armies, the moderate Muslim armies, why aren't they destroying ISIS? ISIS, the whole of ISIS is in the thousands. They are not even in the millions. So to try to convince me that this is, uh, these are like Obama says, that these are really not Muslims, they are just terrorists, is not true. And you know why Arab countries don't want to go to war against ISIS? Because it's going to uh, expose the truth. It's going to expose that these Arab countries... Their military, if they go to war in Syria and Iraq against ISIS, half of Arab armies are going to defect. Oh, my to gosh. Prove, half of the Arab armies are going to defect against their own governments, against the United States, and join ISIS and declare with their forces that the, uh, the, the, this, you know, the Islamic State is now 18 countries. And, and this is a dirty little secret, uh, Debbie, that, that, and we are, we are waiting for moderate Muslim countries to help us. We, let, let them go with their armies. Why don't we ask them to go with their armies? You know why they don't want to go? Because it's going to prove that there is nothing called moderate Islam. Because, okay. because they're going to declare, the, uh, you know, the, the armies are going to fight their own governments. Okay, that is an amazing answer, and I'm actually hoping, I'm going to repeat that at the end of the second hour of the show, because I really never thought about that, that all this call for moderate countries, moderate Islamic countries, or the moderates in Islamic countries, yeah, there's, they aren't, they're never going to be the answer to solving this. I want to ask you, and we're going to jump around, I have Dorinda and Chris both here, I was going to ask you the quickest question, and I want you to get to talk about your books, I know you're writing another book now, but a very quick thing, I saw on your Facebook page, Nani Darwish Facebook page, you had a link to a guy who is actually a former imam, and now he's a, he's Christian, and he is writing, his name is Dr. Mark Christian, writing about uh, what he sees as the, um, he wants to have Donald Trump as a conservative candidate wake up to the fact of the potential danger in America. And you, he talks about the fact he recently won the 80 percent, 80 percent of the 2800 mosques in America are under the direct supervision of the Muslim Brotherhood. Does that first of all, does that sound possible to you? Does that sound true? Absolutely. The, the word Muslim Brotherhood is why don't the West understand the word Muslim Brotherhood are the guardians of the true Islam? That's out, no question about that. And they apply Islam as it's being taught. They're all graduates of Al-Azhar University. What is Al-Azhar University? Al-Azhar University, until today, Debbie, Al-Azhar University, until today, does not, does not want to declare ISIS as un-Islamic. 
how can we invite graduates of Al-Azhar University, who are all of the leaders of the, of the mosques in this country, everywhere, they're all, most of them are graduates of Al-Azhar University. What does Al-Azhar University teach? That ISIS is real Islam. So, frankly, my friend, Mark Christian is right. And frankly, it could be even 90%. So this is alarming because I think in America we have convinced ourselves that there is a kind of moderate form of Islam that's more or less taken hold, so we shouldn't be worried about what's happening in the mosques. But this former imam, Dr. Mark Christian, as well as our guest tonight, Nani Darwish, is saying, oh, absolutely. So you're essentially saying the mosques are either breeding jihadists or at least inspiring people to believe they should be part of the effort to push Sharia law in America, to push toward the creation of caliphate. Is that right? They are not even, uh, where are the marches by the mosques uh, against what ISIS is doing? Where? I mean, it, it's so obvious. Why don't we just believe in our guts? We Americans, why are we, why, it hurts me to see this country that saved my life from radical Islam and oppression of being a woman under Sharia law. Why are we doubting our instincts? Exactly. Why well, I'm not, <laughs> you know, so this is what's so hard. And we're, we're going to talk about this. I, I'm sorry, we're getting off track of what I was planning to ask you about, because I, I read that right before I came here tonight, your link to Dr. Mark Christian's statement. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, if we if that's true, if, if Islam is, if the mosques in America are inspiring jihad, inspiring violence against America, then it makes a very hard question in America politically. What do you do about that when you have a First Amendment? What do you do when you're the, I mean, you, 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 you go back, I think, to the point you were making, actually, which was, uh, Nani, in the last segment about the idea that Islam is, a po- what was the word, a political it's movement? Political Islam. Cre- political it's a political Islam. movement. Uh, in my last book, which is coming out January, it's called Holy Different Islamic Values versus Biblical Values. And one of the chapters that I'm starting with is to show that Islam came in the 7th century, 600 years after the Bible. It came as a rebellion against, against the Bible and biblical values. And this is the bottom line. It's a rebellion against Western culture. It's a rebellion against our way of life. In every way. And do you know that there are many celebrations in the Middle East today about uh, killing the gays in Orlando? Wow. Oh, my gosh. I, you know, I think our media suppresses that. I think that yes. they don't want Americans they to think. There, there are celebrations. Celebration at the public level. Wow. About, uh, they, they, and they are sympathizing with, uh, with Omar uh, Mat- M- M- Mateen. They're, they're celebrating. I mean, they're, he's a hero now. And what are we doing here? And we're saying we're for, for gay rights. Right. Uh, frankly, I don't believe it anymore. I don't believe people who are saying I'm for gay rights. I think they're all uh, cowards uh, <laughs> because they're not, they're, not say, they're not standing. When, it come, when push comes to shove, they're not standing for gay rights. Well, and you would think, this is Dorinda, by the way, Nani, and it's a pleasure Hi. speaking with you. You would think that with everything that has gone on and how we have been, how the media has turned on this uh, this whole gay rights issue, you would think that the gay rights people would be freaking out about what has happened in Orlando and make that a bigger issue. But 
yet it's about guns for some reason. But Absolutely, because we don't want to face the truth, just like the so-called moderate Muslims don't want to face the truth. Absolutely, we are. I'm sadly out of time. There's something time warp out in this this radio studio because it always goes too short. Nani Darwish, thank you so much for calling in tonight. Your next book is going to be coming out when? January. January of 2017, yeah. Islamic Values versus Biblical Values. Nani Darwish, we could talk to you for two hours. Thank you so much for calling thank in. Thank you. My pleasure. Bye-bye. Bye. Folks, what we just heard just now should be something every one of you shares with everyone you know. Come back to the top of the hour because we're going to talk a little more about exactly this topic. And welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk, my second hour roundtable with my good buds, Chris Davis and Dorinda Randall. We just, this show is kind of on fire tonight. We had a fabulous guest the first hour, Nani Darwish, and she is an author. She grew up in Islam in the country of Egypt. She writes extensively and speaks extensively, trying to wake America up to the threat that Islam poses in the world. And she had great answers for lots of questions. One thing she brought up was, uh, and I actually talked with her about something from her Facebook page, which was a link to a gentleman named Dr. Mark Christian, who's actually a former Muslim imam who's become Christian, and he is trying to alert the conservatives. He's, he's particularly, he speaks everywhere, but he speaks to, trying to get to Donald Trump to encourage him to understand, to crack down on Islamic terrorism at its source, theological Islam, what Islam is, what his ideology is. And he, Dr. Mark Christian, says that 80% of America's 2,800 mosques are under the direct supervision of the Muslim Brotherhood, which is a terrorist organization. What he's saying, and Nani Darwish is confirming, is in America, in the mosques, in not just a few random isolated cases, but 80% radicalization is happening because young people are being taught the core radical Islamic ideas. So the question then we were talking about before the break, I just can, I want to talk a little bit more about it was, so Donald Trump said on face the nation, I'm sure much to the chagrin of the establishment. He talked about the need that he said the government should investigate mosques in the U S in the same way that the New York state, New York city police department demographics unit used to spy on Muslims and mosques with the help of the CIA. They did that up until, and this is what we talked about in the show before, Andrew McCarthy, the one who prosecuted the blind sheikh, said they got so much information by spying on the mosques, figuring out who was being radicalized, and, and, and going after them. And so this idea in America that we somehow should step back and, and treat the mosques as untouchable or refuse to profile and, and decline to go into Islamic neighborhoods because we don't want to be racially profiling. You got to deal with reality. Our policies have to deal with reality. But the reality is Debbie, that the current administration is the most Muslim brotherhood friendly administration we've ever had. And they are putting people who are affiliated with the Muslim brotherhood in government positions, in security positions. And even where I live in Richardson, and here in North Texas, there is a uh, the Islamic Association of North Texas, ISNA, is a group that is a U.S. Mother, Mother, Muslim Brotherhood entity, according to the Justice Department and the Muslim Brotherhood's own documents. And so this is a group that is, is out to get us. And, you know, we are just opening the gates and welcoming them in. 
And political correctness is making it so hard, even for, you know, you think in your private life, maybe you're kind of cautious and you don't want to say something might be offensive. So you're a little bit careful. You might be well-informed, but you're still quiet. But for politicians, the idea of venturing in and saying what Donald Trump said, we need to monitor mosques. We need to monitor Islamic neighborhoods. We've got to watch this so we don't have, he's trying to prevent another Orlando, San Bernardino, Boston, Fort Hood. But it's a really tough thing for a politician. It's, it's astonishing. That very yeah. attitude got people killed in San Bernardino because yes. they wanted to be yeah. politically correct and not be profiled as being Islamophobic. Well, and they did they they did a uh, a poll in November 2015, and they they polled one million U.S. Muslim men, young men, and asked them if they believed in suicide bombing. And 26 percent of one million said yes. And so when you have that and then you have our politicians hearing these things, seeing the polls, seeing the numbers of the ones of these jihads that are going on, these lone wolves that they call it lone wolves. And we know that that's part of jihad to take us to the caliphate. But they don't uh, they don't try to protect us. And my question is, what is the end game? Your children's lives are at risk just as much as mine are. And why is it that my son is going to go fight for a country that we they won't even protect what's here in America and stand up? And Donald Trump is the only guy that is saying exactly what Americans want to be said. And now, and I just think, I don't even believe the, that polling that says that 47% of Americans don't think you should spy in mosques. I mean, unless you've had either. your head in the sand, you can't watch what's happening in the world Watch this happening in America and say, well, I don't I don't think we should do that. I mean, I think more Americans, I think they're smarter than the press thinks they and they're smarter than the left thinks they are. They, they do know better. But I want to um, and we've one more. I want to turn to the gun question. But if you want more. Well, thing. I just wanted to say one more thing that there was a, a New York uh, NYPD agent who revealed that there are t- currently 22 Muslim terrorist training camps in America kind of Islamic villages. And I know uh, on the internet, I found a page a while back in 2014 talking about an Islamic village that the mosque in Richardson wanted to do. They've been buying up houses around there. And I, th- I just think it's real important for Americans to uh, to be cogent about what is going on around us. And, you know, we're told if you see something, say something. But with what goes on, it, you know, you don't think they really mean it. But we've got to be alert. Oh, we really do. You know, this, um, in fact, you said, see something, say something. Next week on the show, we're going to have Philip Haney on, who is a former Department of Homeland Security, um, very high up official who left to kind of be a whistleblower. And his new book is out, See Something, Say Nothing. And he's essentially saying that is the order coming down from Obama. And the leftist is, I don't care what patterns you see. And because he was rebuked in his work with the Department of Homeland Security for drawing connections between how many, you know, ter- which mosques were breeding terrorism, which young people were going, which mosque and how they were. T- Anyways, we'll have him on and talk about that. But, you know, this is one of those things that we were saying before Nani Darwish came on. In America, you want to just be really just, we love the First Amendment. We love freedom of religion. We love not making fun of anyone's religion. We love being really respectful. And so we're really bumping up against the problem that Islam has created for us we didn't create it created which as nani was talking about i think chris said a a moment ago because islam is a combination of a a set of theological beliefs about god and it is also a a political conquest it's a political system demanding sharia be the law of the land and is a military conquest ideology since the time 
of Muhammad. That's what Islam is. And so we can't treat that, you know, combined Islamic conquest um, as a religious, as something deserving of the protection of the freedom of religion, Debbie, like with, we treat churches. With political correctness, they're using our freedoms against us. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Because we're so polite. Okay. We'll, we'll be don't. politely dead. <laughs> well, on that subject, I want to turn and talk about what we should do about, I mean, we, we've had politicians now talking about Orlando and very predictably, the American left has immediately pounced on, we got to go to gun control. That's the whole issue. If that guy hadn't had a gun. And so there is now talk about having the people uh, trying to w- find different ways to, to take guns away from people or make it illegal to access them. One of them being that the, D- the Democrats, the liberals are arguing, and President Obama said in a speech that everyone who's on the no-fly list which is a list that Department of Homeland Security has complete discretion to create. Everyone on the no-fly list should be on the can't-buy-a-gun list. And it might sound good in the abstract, but here's the problem. No judge, nobody has looked at those names and agreed their conduct merits being placed on the no-fly list. The DHS, through its own investigations, decides who should be on, probably FBI, CIA, all those agencies without the over, oversight of a court create that no-fly list. So just think of the political maneuvering possible. Just think who, you know, if President Obama, if that became the law, you could say, okay, well, I, President Obama, think that everyone who's ever been affiliated with a Tea Party is probably a radical, and maybe they should be in the no-fly list just to be safe. And he all of a sudden, your have, Second Amendment right is gone. I'm sorry. He'll have Lois Lerner head that up. Yes, <laughs> come out of retirement to target every. But I mean, seriously, it is a it's a list created, and this is one place I, I usually love Judge Janine Perot, or I, I like her. I shouldn't say I love her, but she was on. She jumped on this. Oh yeah, on the no fly list, no gun, buddy. And I think she's wrong because this Second Amendment. Imagine if the rule was we'll take away your um, Fourth Amendment against right against un, having a reasonable search and seizure. We'll take away your First Amendment right to speech. You, you can't have an, a, a constitutional right taken away because some individual guy in Department of Homeland Security suck your name on a list. And people who are on the list, like up to about 800 of them, don't even know they're on a list. Yep. They don't know they're on. It's very hard to get removed. It's not like you can just call up and explain I'm really a law-abiding citizen. And so this is another way people talk about, you know, it's really an interesting thing, by the way, I meant to tell you, ladies, if I didn't mention, the ACLU, who's normally not on the right side of many issues, but they are on the side saying, wait, you can't deny a Second Amendment right to bear arms to somebody just because some federal agency stuck their name on a list. And you know what else? It wouldn't have stopped Omar Mateen. No, it wouldn't have. Because he wasn't on the list. And this is the Democrats, the liberal mindset, taking, seizing the opportunity of a crisis and saying, hey, another chance to grab your guns. Honestly, that's what it is. Mm-hmm. Okay, we have a guest coming after the break. I'm just Debbie George Addison, ladies, can we talk? I'm so glad you are with us. Come back after the break. We're going to talk to Cole Lyle, who has the coolest story imaginable about dogs and PTSD and the Veterans Administration. Don't go away.
And welcome back to Ladies Can We Talk. I must tell you, we love doing this radio show. I'm so happy every week we have um, two of the leading ladies join us, and we enjoy the music. This music just inspires us and every we week. Dance. And so sometimes we dance right here in the studio, but it's a good thing there's no video going. So I'd like to welcome to this hour of Ladies Can We Talk. We have a very special guest on the line. I wish he was here because he could have brought his dog here, and then we could see his dog. But Cole Lyle, we have you, sir. Hello. Hi, Cole. Okay. Hi, Debbie. How are you? Just very well. How are you? I'm doing uh, fantastic. That's a really good Thanks. answer. Well, you know, I mm-hmm. did not have the opportunity to tell our listeners much about you before our break. So we are speaking to Cole Lyle, who is uh, formerly served in the United States military. And um, he had a brilliant idea when he came back from his service. Um, he struggled with PTSD, post-traumatic stress syndrome, and he had he found the most amazing thing that actually caused him to find relief. And so I'd love to have you tell us just a little about your experience and what made you well, what you found help you so much. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I got back from Afghanistan in 2011, and when you return to the states, they make you take something called the post-deployment health assessment, and it really is just kind of an overview of your physical health, your mental health. And that indicated that I needed to seek treatment for post-traumatic stress. So uh, I tried to utilize the VA system. Uh, I was prescribed uh, some opiates, sleep aids, antidepressants, um, went to counseling at what are called vet centers that are kind of outpatient VFWs. They have counselors on staff you can utilize. And I did all that for about, you know, a year and a half, two years, and I I really didn't feel like it was working for me. I felt, uh, in some instances, with nightmares, that it was exacerbating the problem. So... Um, you know, I wanted to quit, but it's, it's difficult to quit when you've been using uh, those kinds of drugs for a, a long period of time. I didn't really find the inspiration until um, two of my own friends committed suicide as a result of oh. the, same, the same symptoms. And so um, I honestly one day just kind of, uh, I was going through a lot of different changes in my life. I got out of the military. Um, I was actually going through a divorce at the time. Uh, I didn't really have any purpose or direction in my life. And, and you know, when my friends committed suicide, I, I thought to myself, I don't want to continue down this path. I don't want to end up being a statistic. So um, I went to uh, a, a room in my house with a Bible and a notebook and sat in there for, believe it or not, roughly 30 hours and just prayed and, um, you know, jotted down notes of what I wanted to do with my life, what I thought was going to be fulfilling, uh, and I knew I didn't want to take opiates anymore, so I just quit cold turkey. And I had another friend who had a service dog uh, that he said worked wonders for him. So I knew it was an option, and I tried to explore that through the VA, and they did not provide um, those dogs. So then I went to nonprofits like uh, Patriot Paws that operates in Texas, Canines for Warriors, Warrior Canine Connection. There's tons of different nonprofits that do it, but with the demand being so high, um, the wait times are oftentimes a year or longer, and I didn't feel like I had that time. So I went and obtained my uh, service dog, Kaya, who's a German shepherd, um, and then had her subsequently trained uh, through an assistance dog's international accredited trainer uh, to be able to do things like recognize when I'm having nightmares and so she'll jump up in bed and lick my face and wake me up. Um, she senses oh. certain stress, <laughs> stress patterns in my voice, and she'll, when, whenever I used to have anxiety attacks, pretty regularly, she would recognize that and she would kind of get in my face and lick my face and just basically break the snowball effect of that anger or depression uh, before it got too bad. And it, and it was, it worked remarkably well for me. So I was sitting here thinking, why does the VA not provide these for veterans, right? 
um, with 22 veterans a day committing suicide, and that statistic was uh, actually procured by a VA study in 2013. The study was actually only used 21 states, and Texas was not among those states. And as we all know, there's a high veteran uh, population in the state of Texas. So the number, tragically, is probably higher than 22. And I thought it was just egregious that, you know, we weren't exploring other options to try to lower that number. Um, And so I kind of got the idea. I was in Washington, and uh, there was a, a United States senator that stopped me on the street because, you know, I mean, you don't see German shepherds very often walking around with a service vest and um, a lot of people stop me because they don't understand because I'm not blind or because I don't have a physical injury that they can see. They don't know why I have a service dog. So um, I told him a little bit about her, and I said that uh, she does. You know, the VA doesn't provide these dogs. And he said, "Well, why not?" And I said, "I don't know. You're the policymaker. You tell me." Like, <laughs> yeah. um, so, uh, so he said, "Well, come by my office, and we'll see if we can talk." And I spoke with him for about 30 minutes, and it was really at that point that I said, "You know, if he's willing to listen to me." then there's no reason why other lawmakers wouldn't listen to me. And I started, uh, I drafted like a two-page basically policy memo, um, created a website, created social media for Kaya. You can actually go on um, Instagram or Facebook and look up, look up uh, her on Instagram or Facebook. Um, and just started meeting with members and said, who would be interested in doing that? And Congressman DeSantis from the Florida State. Well, do we just lose you? Hi, Cole. Oh, we might have just lost you. Oh, no. no I'm, oh, I'm still here. Okay, go ahead. No. Any, anyway, so Congressman DeSantis uh, very graciously stepped up, and um, and I've just since – I've been doing this since May of last year, but Congressman DeSantis joined the fight uh, in uh, early fall of last year. We just had the legislation introduced in March. Uh, it's H.R. 4764. We named it the PAWS Act. It's Puppies Assisting Wounded Service Members. Um and so we've seen tremendous bipartisan success. Uh, we, it's fiscally conservative. We do have an offset uh, in the bill, so we're not appropriating any new money. Um, but even so, it's a relatively cheap program. So I've just been meeting with members and uh, traveling around the country and trying to get people to, uh, first of all, just raise awareness about this specific issue and how service dogs can assist you know, our nation's veterans, but also meeting with members to try to get the legislative effort moving forward as well. So that's, you know, I know that was a pretty long explanation, but that's kind of just in a nutshell what I've been doing. I just love it. We're speaking tonight. um, This is Ladies Can We Talk, and we're speaking with Cole Lyle, who is the main instigator behind this bill he mentioned a moment ago, the acronym being PAWS, P-A-W-S, trying to get the Veterans Administration federal law changed so that providing a dog as a means of kind of counseling, to, I mean, to replace drug therapy for, for people returning to America after service in the military who suffer from post-traumatic stress syndrome or PTSD. And actually, I saw the statistic. I had no idea these numbers. Uh, according to, anyway, there's a, uh, supposedly, according to federal officials, a total of 128,000 of deployed veterans between the years 2000 and 2014 have been diagnosed with PTSD. So it's a large number of people coming Mm -hmm. back and to replace drugs which just sound horrible and counseling with just love isn't that what the dogs kind of provide just love and nurturing well you know it's it's intuitive that dogs can be therapeutic right i mean uh as recently in orlando they brought comfort dogs down to uh help the victims uh and their families of, of that 
um, horrific event. I mean, it's intuitive that they help, but with this specific problem of post-traumatic stress, we can train dogs to combat specific symptoms of post-traumatic stress, like the nightmares, like the anxiety attacks. Um, and so what you see with a trained service dog is not only that therapeutic effect and that kind of sense of purpose where uh, there were a lot of days I didn't even want to get out of bed, and, but you have to with a dog. You have to take them outside, you have to feed them, and it gives you a small sense of responsibility and purpose that a pill will just never provide. Mm-hmm. So it does that, but it also combats the specific symptoms, and that's what makes it so wonderful. You know, Cole, this is Chris, and I have seen programs with dogs in prison, dogs in senior citizens' homes. They are therapeutic. They're wonderful. And I know I've told my husband, every man needs a dog, somebody to love him unconditionally and wag its tail when he gets home. (laughs) I do that for my husband. I know you do, Dorinda. (laughs) Well, you know, dogs have been used in, in different roles for, you know, I mean, just since they were domesticated. I mean, they've been used to aid uh, humans in hunting. They've been used uh, uh, in different capacities. You know, I read some uh, some time ago that there are dogs that can be trained to smell cancer cells at this point. I mean, so you can train dogs to do all sorts of uh, things. And, and so this is something that is fiscally conservative and is going to help veterans. Um, we really haven't had any pushback in terms of members of Congress um, you know, opposing this or anything. It's really just trying to get it through the, the legislative bureaucracy, uh, which takes some time. But uh, democracy is not supposed to be easy. So, but this is a worthy cause and, uh, and it's something I'm going to stick with until we can get it done. Love it. We're talking to Cola with 30 seconds. Dorinda has one more quick question too. I do have a quick question. Okay. Um, when is the vote for the bill? Well, so we're actually going to a legislative hearing uh, on Thursday, the 23rd, this Thursday, the 23rd, a VA hearing. And then after that, it'll likely go to markup and we'll see maybe a vote sometime in July. So there's no date set yet, but there will be probably soon. Cole Lau, thank you so very much for calling in tonight, ladies. Can we talk? Great to talk to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So Cole Lyle is the sponsor or the mover and shaker behind the bill pause to get veterans have the VA cover service dogs to help alleviate PTSD. I love it. It almost make you cry. It's so sweet. Yeah, way too much sense. It'll probably take Congress a long time <laughs> to get it through. We're after the break. We're going to talk about the polling, and we went tell Donald Trump just ignore those polls. Hang in there, buddy. Right. So come back yep. after the break. Can you hear us and welcome back to our final segment, ladies. Can we talk? I hope you were tuned in the last segment. We had on a young man, Cole Lyle, and he is doing a marvelous, generous, lovely thing. He is pursuing having Congress pass an amendment to the or the bill necessary so that the Veterans Administration can co- provide service dogs for people who have PTSD. And they're actually, we were talking in the break, Dorinda knew they were trained service dogs. Right. So right. they, like they don't a, just love all. It's not just for love. It's for. No, you ha- it's a strict requirement. Like in uh, Rockwall, they have Patriot Paws. That's where that they are headquartered there. And the thing is, is that, yes, there's a huge waiting line, but also it's because of the, the standards, the high quality of standards they have for the dogs. I have a friend of mine that uh, she ha- she breeds Labradoodles. So she gave them one. The first one went through six months of training, didn't make it. The second one, though, 
went through six months of training and did make it. And it was a huge celebration. She was very proud of the dog. And they have a ceremony and everything after they graduate. It's really pretty cool. And I didn't realize, too, and Cole Lau was just telling us this, I had just thought it was kind of for, you know, companionship and unconditional love, like like Chris was pointing out that that's what guys need is a dog for unconditional <laughs> love. But, you know, it's really, he was, as Cole Lau was describing to us, it is, you know, the dog hearing your the way he was breathing at night, realizing that he was having a nightmare and he would jump up and lick his face and wake him up and pull him out of that PTSD-based nightmare. Or he would recognize a to- change in the tone of his voice, something else that signaled that he was going through some episode related to PTSD and the dog would just, he was tuned in, it, just really tuned in to him. Yeah. And so it's, it's an amazing thing. And so this pause act, P-A-W-S, great idea. Okay, before we turn to, I want to talk about these polls that are coming out this week because I'm telling you folks, The media is just getting wound up to try to convince America that Donald Trump is not the guy. And and so before we get to those, I want to make sure and thank our sponsor for the show. This show, Ladies Can We Talk, our sponsor is GC Works, and it's a Dallas-based company. They perform research in advanced technology, and they deliver innovative approaches to the oil and gas industry. So GC Works is our sponsor. Appreciate them very much. I really do. Couldn't do the show without him. So back to this polling thing. There were headlines. In fact, I'm just going to read you um, some headlines that were just, they're trying to make you, one was, if this poll about Orlando is accurate, the election is over and Hillary is going to win. Another one was Clinton versus Trump. New poll says Hillary has a 12-point national lead over the Donald. Um, And then analysis, an ominous week of polling for Donald Trump. And as Chris said earlier... My leading ladies, Chris Davis and Dorinda Randall here tonight. The media is going to start turning on Donald Trump. They drooled all over him during the primary. They repeat they gave him so much publicity, every word he uttered was national news. But now that he is the uh, nominee apparent, he isn't the nominee yet, and I think I think after Cleveland he will be. Well (laughs) (laughs) we believe. But so if he is, the media is going to turn on him and as they have just little bits, you know, and he talks about the very pragmatic idea. We need to begin monitoring mosques. We need to begin monitoring Islamic neighborhoods Mm -hmm. and or at least considering doing that and considering profiling. The media's gone crazy. Well polling is one way the media shapes people. They just want to make um what polling does, it depends how you ask the question. It depends the pool of people that who are asked the question. And then it's not, I mean, the polling can sometimes be kind of push polling, like trying to push you to a particular position. But the other thing that happens with polling is that the um, people hear, oh, wow, I guess the majority of Americans right. are supporting Hillary. Well, I, I don't want to be a doof. I, I want to vote with the winner. I like voting with the winner. I mean, is designed to shape people's thinking like maybe they're thinking well maybe i'm missing something why would the majority be for hillary i think she's such a creep and a liar but <laughs> yeah. so well, but the bandwagon effect that they yes about. the bandwagon effect exactly yeah, yeah. so in one poll I, I don't know if you want to tell this story but i want to hit the big poll that came out the cbs poll no no go ahead the quick thing, this was a huge poll that came out and it was just, I mean, all the media was going, oh my gosh, see, see, Donald Trump is in big trouble and Hillary Clinton's the one, blah, blah. Big national um, poll, CBS did. And as it turned out, they, if you dive in, fortunately someone did, and we'll place this article up on the Ladies Can We Talk Facebook page and the Ladies Can We Talk website. But as they, during the waiting process, like waiting, not as in waiting for the, uh, 
brain to stop, but, you know, putting weight on something, the poll increased the Democrat-Republican spread by a percentage point. So the bottom line of it is they polled, it depended who they polled to get the answer that they got, that Hillary was polling way ahead of Trump. The answer was if you if they hadn't done that waiting process, according to nationwide polling, the Republican Party affiliation has averaged 28 percent for 2016 so far. And it averaged 28 percent since the start of May. So the CBS did use 28 percent in their polls composition. You think, oh, OK, well, that's fair. On the other hand, though, the last time the Democrats were at 35 percent, which is the number that of Democrats they put in this poll, 35 was in March of 2013. And so the Democrat Party is affiliation is actually averaged around 29% this year. Wow. Wow. One per, only 1% higher than Republicans, not 7%. So they weighted the number of Republicans and the number of Democrats in this poll skewed to ask more Democrats than than really or that than the percentage of people who now affiliate as with a Democrat. In other words, in plain English, they lied. Well, and whenever you sent us the show prep uh, before the show and you sent us these polls, you put the first two that showed that Hillary was like 12 points ahead of uh, Trump. And I I was turning to David and I go, we're done. We're done. We've got Hillary. It's no use. This is all a scam. This is all over. But then whenever you send the American thinker and it has the entire breakdown of everything, it's like, okay. They lied. We have got to stop allowing them to have the narrative of what they're of this, and let us know that this isn't real. With the numbers that they're doing, the polls that they're taking, we've got to be able to decipher what is truth and what is not. We've got to let it motivate us this political yes. season because Democrats will vote for anybody, <laughs> obviously. <Yeah>. And um, <laughs> you know, the problem with Republicans is we're very picky and choosy, and we don't want to vote straight ballot. Because we want to intellectually vote. Mm-hmm. And we have got to to use this stuff with the polls. Ignore that. Mm-hmm. Get involved politically. Organize your precinct. Turn out the vote. Right. Hold your nose and vote for Trump. We've held our nose for years and voted for the establishment candidates. And the, the, the consequences are huge this time because we'll get another term of Barack Obama-type policies. And so, you know, people have got to... Wake up and just ignore the polls, and hopefully they'll be inspired, and, and Trump will fight back. You know, that's the thing that Romney did not do. He did not fight back. He and did not fight if back. If Trump I will agree. fight back, it will make a difference. And, you know, Trump coming out, even when he launched his campaign, and, and anyone listening to the show knows that he was not my favorite candidate. <laughs> when he launched his, his campaign at the very beginning, the media was full of trying to find polls. Oh, my gosh, you know. Uh, whatever it is, 80% of America finds these comments distasteful and he never should have said that. And this is outrageous. He never should have said that. Blah, blah, blah. You could get people, the the uh, media just immediately happily turning on Donald Trump from the get-go, from the first statements he made. But he, as we all saw, leapfrogged over the 16 other GOP candidates. He just, he kept saying what he thought. What he, and, and, you know, he's as among my criticisms of of him, he's not the most articulate guy you ever met. You wish he would say things in a more precise and statesman-like way. But at the end of the day, he's tapping into America's fears, but not 
urging the fear. He's saying, let's solve these problems. Right. We don't have right. to just sit here and let more and more Islamic immigration happen and then have more Orlandos and San Bernardinos and Bostons. We actually can fight back. If he just sticks with that, he, I think he he can just overcome the media's attack. But he's got it. He even he and his in, you know, his campaign folks, they need to not be swayed by the polls. Right. The one thing that I think the reason why he is resonating so well is because he actually took a page out of the playbook from the Democrats because the Democrats, you know, Republicans always try to explain why they're not racist and why they're wonderful and why their (laughs) ideas are better. Whereas the Democrats, what they do is they say three, they have a three word campaign on most of their things, war on women, pay your fair share, you know, pay fair share, all of these things. And yet here comes Donald Trump and he's like, you know what? I'm going to do what they're doing. Crooked Hillary. You know, and he he just stays to the two to three word mantra and he is blowing them away. Yeah. You know, I think it's amazing. We've been talking a lot in the show since the uh, last week. We go today it was the Orlando uh, just astonishing. And it was an act of war by mm-hmm. the ongoing radical Islamic war against America and Western civilization and Christianity. And we had an act of war in the act of Omar Mateen going into that nightclub in Orlando and killing 49 people. It was an act of war. And we've had since that time so much discussion about it and people are outraged and they're frightened and they want answers. And then there was polling out saying that people liked Hillary's, that the American public liked Hillary's reaction to Orlando better than Donald Trump's. Hillary, who wants to bring, she wants to bring more Islamic refugees to America than even Obama has planned to bring. Right. She was, I remember the debate with Bernie Sanders where the two of them were trying to argue about who was more generous and would bring more <laughs> Islamic refugees to America. That was what, And so that is what is winning with the American population. This is what tells you polls cannot be trusted. I, I mean, they're just... And it's not that we're against all these Syrians coming in. It's that they don't get the background checks. And they can't. There is, they can't. Yeah. And the number one job of the, the commander-in-chief is to protect America and protect the homeland. And that is what I think uh, um, Trump will do. And that is what we've been sorely lacking for the last eight years. Absolutely. Well, you know, we're out of time. That person in the booth over there is starting the music. He always does this when we have more things to say. Anyway, I want to thank him, Neil West. We love having him help his help on the boards. Thank my leading ladies, Jorinda Randall and Chris Davis. Thank our fabulous guests tonight. Nani Darwish was awesome. Cole Lau was awesome. Again, happy Father's Day to each of you. I hope you have a lovely Father's Day celebration with your family. And tune in next week. We have one more week of Ladies Can We Talk. And then starting July 3rd, it will be America Can We Talk. So, so happy you've tuned in. Come back every week. And actually go to ladieskinwetalk.org and on Facebook. Check us out. And, and follow me on Twitter at Debbie Can We Talk. And always, always speak up for America. And tune come out of this show where we talk truth about America. Thanks for listening to Ladies Can We Talk with Debbie Georgiatis. To learn more or to contact Debbie, go to ladieskinwetalk.org. Ladies, can we talk truth about America?